Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. One of the officers called us and said, you know, Mrs. Cavanaugh, I'm so sorry. We, we have found David at 623 in the morning. The doorbell rings and it is two Marines in their dress blues. I'm going to tell us that our son is, is gone. Douglas wrote essays about photography. He thought photography was so important that photography was going to be able to show white Americans that the humanity of black people was the same as their humanity. You want to be a judge? Say yes. Yes. All right. Is your mother guilty or not guilty? Not. Not. <laughs> Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. While trauma has always been a part of the human condition, the psychological effects of exposure to traumatic experiences did not have a name until 1980. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, recognized that people exposed to violence often suffered from long-term psychological and physical effects. And research shows that those who have gone through trauma are more likely to attempt or commit suicide. This has been especially true for many veterans of war who survived the first battle, but too often lose the next one after they return home. A word of warning, the issues discussed in this story may be disturbing to some viewers. Suicide is a disease of isolation. You, you're, you're feeling alone, whether you are physically alone or you just you feel that way. I think there, there's active duty suicides every day. Uh, and for, for those that, that don't die by suicide in, in the military, you know, they get out uh, and then they become, they become a veteran suicide. You are definitely much more likely to die by suicide as a veteran than you are as, a, as someone that has not served in the United States military. extremely prevalent amongst a very small population. You, know, you consider less than 1% of Americans serve in the United States military, and they have a higher suicide rate than those that don't. Certainly one is way too many. Uh, we love to get to zero, and the VA's that top priority is veteran suicide. So we're really putting a full court press on trying to get veteran suicides down to zero. But I I'm sorry to say that some veterans have committed suicide or successful suicides. Uh, in Rhode Island. I think in fiscal year 22, uh, we lost uh, seven of our uh, veterans to suicide. The VA didn't do the best job of taking care of Vietnam veterans when they returned from Vietnam. So we're really trying to get our arms around those veterans who may not be enrolled to get that health care. We think if we can get them into the VA, we can continue to drop that number down. Unfortunately, you don't know if an overdose was 
an intentional suicide attempt or is an accidental overdose. It's clear that some of those are suicides, right? Um, the question, of course, could be how many. We advocate for veterans to get better access to care. Sometimes we in the veteran community and, and in the prevention community, we get a little caught up in the number, right? If we can get that 17 down to 15, that's great. That's two less every year, right? But it's, it's still too many. When you're experiencing all these crazy things, let's talk about it. It's not your fault. Yeah. I did two tours to Iraq. Uh, one in 2015 and then again in 2016 in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. We were supporting the Iraqi army, so we got shot at with indirect fire on a very regular basis. Uh, we spent most of our time treating Iraqi casualties, so we saw a lot of wounded Iraqi army. You can't escape some of the things you've, you've seen. I saw a lot of Iraqis that were very, very damaged, right? And it's hard to put those things away, right? They never, they, they, they never go away. And they grew up learning all about the war on terror. And so David was thrilled to go there, to lead a unit there. I know he wasn't prepared for what he was going to experience when he got there. There were times he would call in the middle of the night and, Mom, I'm scared. There's bombs going off everywhere. When David came back to the States before he was sent to 29 Palms in California to prepare for his tour to Syria. He spent some time at home and it was good. He would tell about some of the experiences that he had been involved in. Did we know that he probably carried some PTSD when he returned? Yeah, uh, yeah, we did. You didn't pick up on anything other than that was just part of the job. You know, that's what they all did. And so he left to California. He was super excited. He was, he was a great guy, right? He was a Marine's Marine. He was dedicated to, to his craft as a machine gunner. Uh, and he was just a good dude all around. And after he'd gotten settled on base, our daughter that lives out there is calling us in the middle of the night, mom, mom, we can't get a hold of David. Something's wrong. One of the officers called us and said, um, you know, Mrs. Cavanaugh, I'm so sorry. We, we have found David. And at sunrise, 6.23 in the morning, the doorbell rings and it is two Marines in their dress blues. I'm gonna tell us that our son is, is gone. I close my eyes and I can still see Sergeant Kavanaugh on the ground uh, with, with the gun in hand in a, in a pool of his own blood. So it's, uh, th those images never go away. And it's, as you get further and further away from it, it's harder and harder to to move past it, right? His twin brother, Tommy, he had gotten out of the Marine Corps, went through firefighting school, had become a paramedic, and we never saw him sober again. You could just tell he had this anger that was unbelievable. He had a sense of abandonment by his brother because they were identical twins. And so one day he um, just wrote a letter to our whole family and just said, I came into this world connected to my brother and I can't wake up every day and look in the mirror and see his face and know that he's not here. And so I'm gonna go be with my brother. 
and went back to his apartment and committed suicide. And it was unbelievable, just unbelievable. Because of my line of work, I, I know of between 25 and 30 have died by suicide. You know, there's a, a huge culture of alcohol use in the military and uh, we, we drink, right? We drink when we're happy, we drink when we're sad, we drink to celebrate, we drink to mourn. You'll find yourself trying to drink it away. So when you're under the influence to the point where you, you no longer see suicide as a bad idea, uh, it, it makes it something that you, you could bring yourself to do. I think that's the piece we can really approach to, to start slowing down veteran suicides. I think a, a lot of veterans have had a suicidal ideation. I, I'd be lying if I told you I, I haven't had the thoughts, right? Um, I, I had a gun in my hand once, right? Uh, I was, luckily, I, I kind of came to and, and put it down. I wish I could say there's a way to end veteran suicide, but, but there isn't, right? There's no way to guarantee that, that veteran suicide is gonna end. And anybody that suggests otherwise is they're either lying or they're not being realistic, right? but we can absolutely reduce the frequency. And the way we do that is we, we get engaged. Getting them engaged in other things, whether that's uh, emotional support animals, right? Uh, dog training. I, th I think dogs are a really good way to get veterans engaged in things. When you have such intense grief, you have to find a purpose for your pain. Canines for Warriors, their mission is to prevent warrior suicide through assigning a service dog. We've trained them in our house and given them a dog to where now they can go be in the world. It's been an incredible healing process for us as well. Have these dogs in our home where they give us comfort and support. And then we get to turn that leash over to another warrior and say, because our son didn't have this opportunity, we want to give this opportunity so that no other parent gets that phone call that we got. It's about re-engaging in the community. Getting re-engaged is kind of that first step into getting the mental health help, if you're, even if you're resistant to it. At Comic-Con, we're gonna see a lot of veterans that we otherwise wouldn't normally see. Veterans that have never heard of the Vet Center before. They aren't aware of our services. Hey, hey, first of all, welcome home. Oh, I appreciate that. Do you know about the Vet Center? The what? The Vet Center? We're part of the VA but we're separate from the medical center. We do readjustment counseling services, all right? That's our bread and butter. When we lose the military service, a lot of us, we don't know what's next. There's not necessarily a plan. So that's why we really try to focus on giving them opportunities to experience new things. We have licensed clinicians you can come in and talk to. It's all confidential. We do a lot of veteran engagement pieces. We do the archery every Monday night with the Narragansett bow hunters. Just yesterday, I had three Vietnam veterans in Mystic, Connecticut with me on a fishing charter, free of charge. Because the goal is for you to go do it again. Right, right. Yeah, we want you to want this to be a new hobby. Hobbies are so important to our community because the last thing we want is a veteran to go home and do nothing. We have Dungeons and Dragons for veterans. You know, that's when we get stuck in our own heads. You know, that's when we start thinking too much. I actually embed a clinician into that group because we find that a lot of veterans with, uh, you know, say a veteran has violent tendencies. Right. They tend to have violent tendencies in the game. <laughs> and then after the session, our clinician goes over that stuff with them and says, hey, why did you attack that poor guy? He wasn't doing anything. We need to be engaged, and veterans do so much better when we engage with each other. 
we're family of sorts. So. Uh, we are we are family. Yeah. So if you need something, anything, you call me, call me, one Marine to another Marine, it's that easy, brother, all right? Except for five, brother. Hoorah. You know, we're gonna have a clinician on site just in case any veterans approach us and are in crisis and need to talk to somebody. Uh, we have full confidentiality uh, access in the mobile vet center. How many people know that they can come here and get the level of care that they're gonna get? And we hope that they all know about it and that they can come out here. Just in general, we hope that they know about us so that they reach out to us if they need us. Yeah, I'll stop by and see you guys. I think we're seeing a shift, right? People are being more and more comfortable with the ideas of therapy, with uh, approaching mental health and substance use, getting access to that care. Um, there's still a stigma. They're told for the course of, you know, at least four, sometimes up to 30 years, that mental health it cares for the week. When they get out, they're going to continue thinking that. The first thing you feel in suicide as a parent is guilt. What were the signs that I didn't see? There's no place for us within the system to talk about what we experience. We've got to have the military accept that these men and women talk about these traumatic experiences. I think it's, it's changing. If they serve in an environment where getting access to that care is easy and it's accessible and it's acceptable within the unit to get that care, when they get out, they, they will continue to engage. In an effort to prevent suicides, veterans in crisis can go at no cost to any VA or non-VA health or emergency care facility for treatment. Veterans do not need to be enrolled in the VA system to use this benefit. And if you're a veteran in crisis or concerned about one who is, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 988 to receive 24-7 confidential support. We now take another look at an American who was a fugitive, aided by friends in Rhode Island in a daring and dangerous escape. He went from being on the run to becoming one of the most influential Americans of the 19th century. Tonight, how the people of our community played a pivotal role in the life of an abolitionist as he took his first steps to freedom. Throughout his whole life, from, from the time that he uh, really gains freedom, he works constantly for freedom and for freedom for his brothers and sisters, meaning the African-American community. He spoke out for women. At one point in time, he's in England and how important it is for the English to take their foot off the neck of the Irish. So he was somebody who worked all the time for equality. That early civil rights activist was born a Southern slave. Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey later changed his name to Frederick Douglass to elude capture. He escaped bondage, arriving in Newport in 1838. Historian Lee Blake explains why he couldn't stay there. Because Newport, Rhode Island, is a slave state. And one thing that people really forget is how involved Rhode Island was in the slave trade. Many of the slave ships that came to the United States came into Rhode Island. But Douglas and his new wife, Anna Murray Douglas, do find safe harbor, however briefly, in Newport with the free black family of Isaac Rice. The Rice homestead still stands on the corner of Thomas and William Streets and was a station on the Underground Railroad. The Douglases were then whisked by stagecoach here to New Bedford. From that corner down about 
four blocks is all Abolition Row. Blake, who is president of the New Bedford Historical Society, says it is to this Whaling City neighborhood, now the historic district Abolition Row, that Douglas is sent. He has his first taste of life as a free man in the home of Nathan and Polly Johnson. What role did this very house that we're sitting in have in shaping Frederick Douglass's life? Nathan and Polly Johnson, who were African-American entrepreneurs, were part of the Underground Railroad. So this is an Underground Railroad site, and when Anna and Frederick come here, they've just been married just three or four days, but Frederick is 20 years old. So we're so used to seeing Frederick Douglass as an elder statesman, we forget that he had a foundation story, and this house is part of the foundation story. The Johnson's house sits side by side with those of Quaker families, whose meeting house is also on the street. Anti-slavery Quakers were active in the city's whaling trade and employed many African Americans. New Bedford is a really unique place at that time. New Bedford is a, a bustling whaling port, but it's also a place with a large free black population. Massachusetts ends slavery in 1783. So people here are free and are able to go about their business as uh, citizens. Douglas finds work on the docks in New Bedford and marvels at the opportunity in the seaport town. He's able to vote here. Voting in New Bedford was not segregated. He paid his poll tax, $1.50, and in the 1840s he's voting. Uh, New Bedford African Americans were running people for elections for different posts and positions. So the New Bedford teaches him the possibility and the hope of what freedom might really look like if people were equal. Douglas is also able to attend church and act as a lay minister where he learns he needs to speak up. He talks about getting the sacrament in one of the churches where he's sitting in the back of pew, he gets the sacraments last, and he just can't believe it. And he writes about that. And he writes about how Christians were hypocritical. So as good as it was here, yeah, it wasn't yeah. perfect. Right. He's also able to write and put little editorials in the paper. So he, he develops a voice here which he wouldn't have developed anywhere else. And that voice brings an invitation to speak in Nantucket, a transformational moment when the audience meets the eloquent, literate, self-educated Douglas. He's very hesitant, but he speaks and talks about his life as an enslaved person. But at that time, many of the abolitionists had never really met a slave. So Douglas becomes really important because he can communicate that message of what it was like to be enslaved. He would talk about his relationship with his mother, who he only saw a couple of times his whole life, and uh, the beatings that he had. Blake says Douglas not only gave a powerful first-person voice to the evils of slavery, he gave a face, an imposing, intellectually gifted leader. Douglas had a whole rationale for that. Douglas wrote essays about photography. He thought photography was so important that photography was going to be able to show white Americans that the humanity of black people was the same as their humanity. But he also was looking at the idea that at the time, white people were 
making sure that there were stereotypes of black people, that uh, they would do pictures that were demeaning, that depicted them as less intelligent. So he really was pushing the whole idea that that wasn't true. Blake says Douglas and his family lived in New Bedford for about five years. He would return many times to visit. He also eventually lectured at the Newport Opera House on Turo Square and maintained his friendship with the Rice family. Recently, Rice descendants who still own the home found a letter from Douglas in a bundle of family papers. It was written in 1860 on the eve of the Civil War. The letter begins, these are stormy days. In a surprise turn of fate, Blake found that she too has a connection to Frederick Douglass. These are my abolitionist ancestors, William and Amelia Piper. So here I am, I'm an educator, I'm researching, and what happens? I come across my own family's names in papers, in letters that Frederick Douglass wrote. Blake's great-great-great-grandparents were also conductors on the Underground Railroad along Abolition Row. We're proud of that. And we're proud of a number of the abolitionists who worked very hard to end the whole uh, oppressive system of enslavement. Right across the street from the Johnson home, construction is now underway on Abolition Row Park. And at its heart will be a statue of Frederick Douglass. The statue depicts Douglass in his waterfront working clothes and will bear his quote, truth, justice, liberty, and humanity will ultimately prevail. The same words inscribed on the Senate chamber walls of the Massachusetts State House. What do you want people to feel when they go to the new Abolition Row Park? I want them to see how civically engaged people were and use that as an example for them to move forward and be engaged. Be engaged in saving our democracy because that's what those people were doing and we're still fighting for our democracy. For more on Douglas's life and the role he played in securing the right to freedom for African Americans, you can watch Oscar-nominated filmmaker Stanley Nelson's documentary, Becoming Frederick Douglass, streaming now on Rhode Island PBS Passport. Finally tonight, famed local judge Frank Caprio recently retired from the Providence Municipal Court after serving on the bench there for more than 40 years. The announcement came amid questions about who profited from his Caught in Providence television series. Caprio, of course, is known for giving those who come before him a heavy dose of kindness and a chance to make it right. Last fall, as part of our continuing My Take series, we asked him why he believes in the importance of second chances. I haven't met the person yet who hasn't made a mistake and needed a second chance. It's all part of life. I mean, it's 100 bucks. I'm going to dismiss it. I appreciate it. And I wanted to say, never have I met a judge like you. I'm not going to comment on that except to say this. I don't do anything different than what I was taught to do by my parents. My name is Judge Frank Caprio, and this is my take on second chances. I believe in second chances because it, it's, it's part of life. It gives a person the opportunity to not only recognize their mistakes, but to do something positive about it. In our daily life, I would suspect that most of us make 
at least five mistakes a day. Simple stuff. Maybe we take the wrong turn on the street. That's a mistake. Maybe we say something we really didn't mean to say. Oh, simple stuff. We're talking about major mistakes. People, some people commit crimes. That's a whole different. That's a whole different situation. I was going to the blood work for my boy. He's handicapped. Huh. You were taking your son to the doctor's office. Yeah, I take him for blood work mm -hmm. every two weeks because he's got cancer. You are a good man. My entire life, I've been given second chances. I was born into a poor family of immigrants, right? So. Going through school, it was very difficult. You know, I, uh, when it was time for me to go to college, I had to work to get through college because we couldn't afford it. And then it was time to go to law school. I couldn't go to law school when I graduated from college because we didn't have enough money in the family. So I had to then find a way to go. So I had a second chance. I was able to get a job teaching school in Providence. I had a second chance. I was able to go to law school. I had a second chance again, right? I was married, I was running for public office. All of these things were second chances for me. My first time I was elected to the city council, I served for eight years on the city council. Thereafter, I ran for attorney general and I was defeated. I got a second chance in life. Second chance led to me ending up being a municipal court judge, which has opened new opportunities for me and given me a unbelievable opportunity to give others a second chance based on my experiences in life. You want to be a judge? Say yes. Yes. All right. Is your mother guilty or not guilty? Not. Not. <laughs> I give many second chances and I see some people who prosper after having a second chance and others who fail. One of the uh, one that is more endearing is I had a young man come before me uh, not too long ago. Yeah, I'm waiving the penalty. Okay. You're free to go. Oh, but I want to tell you something about uh, my life. Well, let me get comfortable. Uh, but, hey, okay, just I want to tell you thank you because like 20 years ago, I was a bad boy. Like I'd be here every month to get a speeding limit ticket, drunken driver, and I spend $53,000 to be, to be a citizen. I have 16 years citizen of the United States. You told me by that time, I'm uh, 18, 18 years old, and you say, why you wanna be later? You wanna be in jail? You wanna be die? Or you wanna be somebody? And I say, I wanna be somebody, and I took no, I want to hear it. <laughs> I took my CDF. I'm a truck driver. Thank you, you. <clears throat> yeah, that's great. That story has been repeated numerous times with a, a number of people, and that is uh, very rewarding to me. God love you. Congratulations on turning your life around. Come up here, I want to shake your hand. So second chances, in my judgment, are the key to success for most people. So we learn by our mistakes, and when we are given a second chance, 
right? That's like a new life for us. It's a fresh breath of air. It's like the sunshine coming out after the darkness. And that's why second chances are very important. In late January, the Providence City Council unanimously voted to elect Judge Caprio Chief Judge Emeritus of the Providence Municipal Court. Caught in Providence will no longer be filmed in the city's courtrooms. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast on your favorite audio streaming platform. Thank you and good night.